0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. During the first season of the podcast, we examined the origins of patriarchy on a timeline through the history of Western civilization centered mostly on the United States. During the second season of the podcast, when we solicited listener stories, we were flooded with submissions containing powerful and painful experiences, most of which came from white women, and a large percentage of these women had grown up in The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This season, we've taken on the huge project of trying to understand patriarchy around the world, region by region, and our past several episodes have focused on Latin America. Throughout the project, we have discovered ways that systems of oppression intersect and especially the ways that white American women occupy a position in society where they can be both the oppressed and the oppressor. But until this episode, I had never encountered scholarship that brought the themes of all three podcast seasons together, examining structural patriarchy, white Mormon women, and immigrant women from Latin America. This intersection will hit very close to home for many listeners, so please listen with an open mind and an open heart, and join me in welcoming to the podcast our guest, Dr. Brie Romanella. Welcome, Brie.
1: Hi. Good morning.
0: (laughs) So happy to have you here with us. I'll just start by reading your professional bio, and then, as usual, we'll ask you to introduce yourself more personally afterwards. Brittany Brie Romanello earned a PhD in sociocultural anthropology from Arizona State University. Her research in the Southwest and borderland areas used mixed ethnographic methods to understand better how the intersections of race, ethnicity, legal status, and religion shape Latinx immigrants' lives, social networks, family structures, parenting, and identity. During the next two years as a Mellon postdoctoral fellow, she will continue doing intersectional immigration and sociocultural research in the Arizona borderlands. Additionally, she is an affiliated researcher with Arizona State University, the Arizona delegate for the Southwest Oral History Association, and a medico-legal death investigator for the Maricopa County Medical Examiner. There is so much interesting information in that bio, I hope you'll kind of explain some of those terms and talk a little bit more about what you do for work, but so excited to have you. And maybe you can just start by introducing us to you, like where you're from originally and then how you came to do the work that you do today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. And I'm also really excited to be here today. A little bit about me and I guess explaining what that professional bio is. So, yeah, I was born in Turkey, Turkey before the Gulf War and my dad worked for the Department of Defense Education. So we moved around a lot in my early life across the eastern U.S. and, you know, lived in Germany, came to Utah when I was a small child and grew up basically living in the Southwest West area. So I've lived most of my life in Utah, Nevada, and Arizona. So yeah, I worked in immigration, education, in immigration law, and also like advocacy work before I began my graduate studies in anthropology at ASU. And it's something that's always interested me. I was especially interested in gender and how gendered experiences impact and shape immigration to the U.S. because of like women I was encountering in ICE detention centers, trying to get them out and reunited with their families, how their experiences as mothers differed from men who were immigrating or who had been experiencing detention and deportation processes. It became very relevant when the first summer I was doing fieldwork, I had dozens of LDS women across three states who expressed interest in talking about their immigration experiences and how the church intersects with that. So that's how I came to do what I do. I'm an ethnographer, which basically means I spend a lot of time in intimate personal contact with a specific community. So my community was Latin. Latina immigrant Mormon mothers in the US Southwest. So I spent three years doing field work on top of my personal experience, studying how maybe women had similar interactions or similar experiences and how they were, in almost all cases, very different and unique in how they viewed their immigration experience and uh, as members of the church. So yeah, I also do a lot of other things. I'm involved in a lot of activist work in Arizona. I work with I've been working with No Más Muertes, No More Deaths, for quite a few years, doing water and food drops along known migrant trails in Arizona. And I also am a medical legal death investigator. So my I work in active homicides at Maricopa County. I'm the only Spanish speaking medical legal death investigator. And I do it on a volunteer basis because there is no state money. And what I also specialize in though is migrants. So repatriating people who have passed away crossing the border or people who have been living as immigrants, like undocumented in Maricopa County, finding out who they are and repatriating them back to their families in Latin America. So I do a lot of embassy work, And I do a lot of missing persons work. So that's what I've been doing on a volunteer basis for almost two years. I'm guessing that
0: people who are immigrating are really at risk of violence. I mean, I just know I've studied that in other contexts, that Mm -hmm. people, you know, refugee and immigrant situations, they can be completely invisible. And maybe if they're here without documentation, people don't really... Prioritize investigating their deaths or investigating, like, you know, what happened to them, they can just fall through the cracks and be lost. Is that true? Is that what you find?
1: I would say it's more than true. Something that I speak about in my work a lot is that I consider myself an immigration scholar across the lifespan, and that Mm -hmm. extends into mistreatment and the indignities that happen after death death is, in my opinion, still a business and a product of capitalism in the way governments and societies treat people in death based on how they valued them in life. And so if you think about the way immigrants in general, but especially if you are a non-European immigrant and the way Latino populations specifically are racialized as quote-unquote illegal, as criminal that treatment and it it extends into death. It extends into how hard law enforcement or border patrol is willing to investigate the circumstances of someone's death and in the willingness of embassies and agents of the state in in their willingness to like provide funding for DNA testing to make sure we have the right person that we're sending home and yeah how we prioritize families in other countries who are waiting for answers. So I would say the injustice extends far beyond what I even imagined. Again, as someone who studies immigration in in birth and how people make decisions in families and then their experiences post-migration, before I started this work, I hadn't thought about death. And then I was exposed to yeah, every horrific thing you can imagine and how the injustice extends there. So, yeah, it's a very unique experience. And I try very hard to understand in some ways the privilege that it is to understand more about the world and how our world works in fortunate and unfortunate ways. But it's also a lot of secondhand trauma to realize there's very little I can do about it except what I'm doing. So yeah. it does sustain my drive and passion for social justice in all walks of life. Again, immigration across the lifespan, including understanding the conditions of why people migrate, which was a big part of my work, my motivations for doing my PhD work.
0: Well, well yeah. hats off to you, Pri. I I'm so inspired by what you're choosing to do your life with your time on this earth. That's beautiful, beautiful and important work. And it does seem like just so few people are doing, even just hearing you talk about food and water drops on migrant trails. I just really respect and I'm grateful for you. Thank you. So let's dive into some of this content. And actually, I was going to start off by asking you, you know, what the reasons are for people to migrate. I know I've had experiences with people I know in Latin America immigrating to the United States because they join the church somewhere mm-hmm. in Latin America and they're wanting to come specifically to this region of the U.S. to kind of have a community of Latter-day Saints. But yeah, if you could just start us off by telling us about, you know, is there a typical immigration story for the these people that you're working with?
1: I want listeners to understand the context of the study and understand I'm not trying to make a monolith of <laughs> experience in my answers. So I interviewed over 70 women between 2018 and 2021 living in Utah, Nevada, Arizona, and California, most of whom were living in Arizona, which is a unique sociopolitical context because of the COVID pandemic. So, but I did have over 250 women volunteer or sign up to be contacted to to participate. But as anyone might know, doing a study like this and the time, there was no way I could interview that many people. But I did use the data from 69 of them for this analysis. So this is where a lot of my answers are going to be coming from. And I do just want to make sure listeners know that, that when you're doing an ethnographic project, you need to interview at least 25 to 30 people to quote unquote Saturate your findings, which means we can confidently say this is a common experience if we're Mm. finding patterns, if that makes sense. Uh I did double that because of the demand to participate, but also because I knew, unfortunately, that there would be pushback from inside and outside the church as, like, oh, these experiences might be seen as a one off, or like, oh, that's just one person who had this experience with a bad apple, right? And I really wanted to make sure that my findings could be saturated or well-established enough to say, no, these are things that I can confidently say are happening and have been happening and will continue to happen unless we have these conversations. So I just wanted to give that background to answer your question about, is there a typical immigration story? I do want to start off by saying, as you and many others who've studied U.S. history or Latin American history by chance may know, the U.S. has had a huge impact in creating the conditions for migration from Latin America. And what I mean by that is involving themselves and funding guerrilla movements that interrupt the democratic processes, like fair elections in these countries, wanting to have a stakehold in agricultural production or resource production. And so in many countries that I have visited, like Colombia, Argentina, Guatemala, Mexico, the U.S. has had, our government has had a huge hand in creating the conditions for migration by depleting and destabilizing the ability for people to make a safe living. And so that impacts Latina LDS women from the get go, right? They're, they are living as the products of the history that our country has had a huge hand in creating. And so when women I spoke to, so most of them ranged from ages late 20s to early 70s. So a lot of these women had lived through civil wars especially in Central America or in Chile and Argentina, where they had different dictatorships and revolutions. And so joining the church, the main factor was not to immigrate, but because a lot of the missionaries in these countries were white Americans, it created a social network that allowed new members or pioneer members, people who had been the first members in their areas to have a pathway to have sponsorship to come to the US, the church and religious groups as a whole serve as an entity of power outside of state agents. So basically, the shared belief in something, in this case, the LDS belief, unites people and it unites their resources and networks. So a lot of women I interviewed were either able to have former missionaries or mission presidents or people that they had met who had come from the U.S. to live in their countries sponsor them or be able to connect them with lawyers who were LDS, who were using their resources and expertise. But another huge way that is a little taboo to talk about is a lot of white missionaries married women that they met in Latin America. Yep. So You have a marriage market (laughs) that's created by that and a power dynamic. Uh, A lot of women I talked to, I would say at least a dozen of the women I interviewed who were married to white men had met these men in the mission field, either when they were missionaries or the men had like approached them and been like, can I write you a letter? So you have a big uh, fiance visa or like family connection there. So I wouldn't say there's a a typical one other than the sense of social networks in the church facilitate or make easier difficult immigration process. Now, nowadays, as immigration laws, especially since the Trump administration, have become very difficult to navigate and the government's basically trying to get rid of what's called chain migration, which is like... If I came here on a fiance visa and i married and I get my green card, used to be able to get a green card after having a visa between six months to a year, depending on your country of origin. After a couple of years, you could petition to bring family members over. And that's how a lot of women and their families were able to enter with authorization, even if they overstayed their visas and became undocumented. Or that was a, a pathway for women to just be able to live with authorization from the get go.
0: So what do immigrants report when they arrive
1: in the US? So in my experience, so about 60 plus percent of the women I interviewed were not members when they arrived to the US. But my study was unique in the sense that I I don't really know of that many other studies that look at women's membership across the migration process, so like 35% about were members like born in the church and then immigrated. So when you
0: say members, we're referring to members of the LDS church.
1: Yes. Yes. So like born in the covenant, as uh, many people might say. So I think that that shaped a lot of people's experiences. And what I mean by that is for many women who had been a member of a different religion, identified as Catholic or Protestant or something else, pre-migration, they maybe did not have a built-in support network. I mean, there are ethnic enclaves. So what that means is if I interview a woman from Honduras, for example, one woman I interviewed, she moved to Southern California to a neighborhood where there is a lot of Central Americans and other Andoreñas and that's a safety net, right? A lot of literature talks about ethnic enclaves as safety nets while you're adjusting to the US, you have other people from similar backgrounds to help you find work, housing, maybe eat some food and have music that's familiar to what you grew up with and it makes the adjustment I don't want to say less traumatizing, but it it allows a buffer, right? That you have some type of support network. Women who were already members in the church had a built-in support network, oftentimes from beginning the process and making the decision to migrate and then coming in and having a built-in support network. And that was a stark difference that I saw between women that came, depending solely on ethnic enclaves and maybe some extended family or kin they had in the general area, to being like, oh, I'm moving to California because there's lots of Hondureños So there's lots of, I have a cousin that lives there. That's how other groups are making these decisions, right? Mormons are making the decision to come to Utah or come to other places that have high church membership on top of ethnic enclaves. And so many women would tell me, oh, like one woman, Maria Dolores, she's from Ecuador. She had her husband, her ex-husband was from El Salvador. And they were already members before they came. So the minute they crossed the border, they had cousins and ward members and a, a bishop who had all set up the structure for them to stay in someone's guest room. They were able to find jobs within a couple of weeks because of networks within the Spanish speaking congregation. And they had a close relationship with the bishop who was also from El Salvador. And so the the husband and the bishop had some cultural connections and that rapport allowed them to access more resources while they were getting on their feet. So that's kind of one example that like, if you weren't Mormon when you migrated, yes, you still had support, but it wasn't as strong.
0: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you've talked so far about missionaries, missionaries who, and I can speak from my own experience. I was actually a missionary in Chile for the church and I know I I mean, this is hitting close to home for me, too, because I do have very, very dear friends in Chile that I love very much. And some of them actually have come to Utah and d- don't live far away from me right now. So that's I, I've seen this firsthand. And mm-hmm. I do know that so many missionaries do develop like a lot of love, like genuine love for the people. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's definitely part of this equation and then like you said relationships and even marriages come of missionary work and i know the church does at least in their values really talk a lot about the siblinghood of all human beings and that we're all children of god so that's definitely in lds theology and so i do want to make sure that we've established that that there is so much good and genuine love and absolutely And on the other hand, I know that these immigrants who come to the U.S. do experience racism also. And so I do want to, you know, add to this narrative that there is some really problematic racism, even in
1: LDS history and theology. So let's talk about that a little bit, too. Yeah, absolutely. And just side note, I I served my mission in Taiwan and I realize those are different contexts, but I a hundred percent am glad that you mentioned that. And I relate to that because it's a very complicated and nuanced relationship. You're, you're in a relationship of power as a missionary. You have this badge of authority and you're encouraged to speak with that. And you're also encouraged to have genuine love and compassion for everyone you meet. And so, yeah, I think a lot of these relationships and how things progress and like people migrating or how people sustain relationships in the church. It is problematic if we think about like neo colonization efforts and like the overall purpose of missionary work and how American nationalism is rooted in that. But also like as a 19 to 22, 23 year old, if you grew up in the church, I don't think you're taught to actively think about that. And a lot of the love and compassion you're developing, it is really real. And a lot of times the first time that you've had to think of outside of yourself and about others for a long period of time. So I just want to comment on that in that both of these things exist, right? Like the neocolonization, the racism enmeshed in the theology and also just like missionary and cultural practices are real. And I also think that people's perceptions of how they're loving And fellowshipping is also very real. And I think a lot of times those two things coexisting are oversimplified in and outside of LDS spaces and how we like perceive living and experiencing religion, right? So I just wanna make that note of that. And I love that you brought that up because I think it ties directly to the origins of LDS racism and what I often call benevolent racism, Mm -hmm. which is like I'm serving, loving, living, laughing. But the racism is also like, it's there. It's enmeshed in a lot of those power dynamics and relationships as well. So the way I try to conceptualize or explain to folks who have never been LDS or don't really have a concept of LDS doctrine is that I would always argue that Christianity if you're looking at the Bible, which Mormonism is based off of we are fulfilling biblical prophecy and we are we are adding to what's already in the Bible. So the, the Bible is already based on hierarchies because of race, ethnicity, and background. And the, the Book of Mormon is an extension of that, which is like in groups and out groups. And I think something that is unique about the LDS church origins is that Mormonism was meant to be a fulfillment of Jesus's vision of unity and a utopian like society that would welcome all who wanted to hear the gospel. Right. So while there were other religions like Seventh Day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses that, you know, come out of this religious movement in the you know, 1800s and the early 1800s. Mormonism was, at least according to Paul Reeve and other scholars that I've read, was one of the first religions that actually racially integrated Right? So a lot of religious practices were for men only, which was true of some rites in Mormonism for a long time, but women were allowed to join in fellowship. But most of those religions in the Eastern US stayed relatively white and European and were even split along ethnic lines. So the Irish Christians stayed together, the German Christians stayed together. And Joseph Smith's vision of saving people of color was a motivator to allow people of other races to join. And there was a lot of pushback from LDS members and also outsiders due to that because of white supremacy and racial views of purity and acceptability at that time. And so you also have that plus the theology of Mormonism, which talks about Two groups, the Nephites and the Lamanites, and their skin color being a differentiation in quote unquote righteousness and worthiness. And there's a lot of scholars that have talked about Lamanite identity, such as Farina King, Moroni Benali, Angelo Baca, Ignacio Garcia, Hokulani Aikau, and many others, many, many others, Daniel Hernandez as well. And so I recommend looking at their work because they are coming from Latina or Pacifica or indigenous backgrounds of how this use of Lamanite has impacted their experience and the legacies of that. But what I mean to say is race and hierarchy and power has always existed in Mormonism, especially as an extension from Christianity overall. And so... A lot of pushback I get sometimes is maybe a lot of colorblind attitudes. Mm -hmm. that exists not just in the LDS church, but I would argue that's present everywhere, especially in this political landscape in the U.S. right now of like, I don't see color or, oh, that's in the past and it doesn't matter, but it very much does matter because as my study showed, this is very much affecting a lot of people's experiences week to week, day to day. (laughs) And while the overt narratives that some would deem as racist are not as commonplace as where they were in maybe the 70s and 80s, it's still there. Oh, yeah. It's still in there. I mean, I think in this past general conference, who was it, Dallin H. Oaks or someone, uh, I think Dallin H. Oaks says it a lot, but like, we need to be unified. The most important part of our identity is that we're Mormon, you know, and little pushes here and there that try to de-center the very real experiences of race and class and gender that impact and shape people's lives, even in the church, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the origins are there, and they continue to permeate lived experiences today. And I saw a lot of that in my case study.
0: Yeah. Well, so let's dive into one of the kind of facets of this racism and talk about the history of interracial marriage within the LDS church. And I want to say, too, that You talked about Joseph Smith and his vision of unity, but that's kind of complicated by the passages in the Book of Mormon that very explicitly equate sin with a dark skin. So you have both in the very origins. And then you have Brigham Young, who really leaned in hard to the racism and took it in a different direction than Smith did. But like Mm -hmm. you said, let's let's go into interracial marriage because I think this is a really important lens through which to see race. And I know this is what you encounter a ton in your research.
1: Yes, yes. So something I do want to say is that I didn't say earlier, I apologize, is that people like Bruce R. McConkie, who served as you know, a top leader in the LDS church, for those who may not know, there was a lot of differentiating along race, of that if you were black right? The black church members couldn't have full rights until 1978. If you were black, there was this seed of Cain ideology that impacted white leaders' beliefs. This wasn't just LDS, right? This extends into a lot of Christian group belief systems. Being black was seen as almost irredeemable right? And that, that race and hierarchy was innate as part of God's plan. And there was a belief that Black folks could not be saved or redeemed as equals to white members. However, people of quote unquote, Lamanite heritage, so Pacifica indigenous and Latin American origin folks could be saved if they received the gospel. And this is important when we're thinking about interracial marriage because a lot of the early interracial marriage that happened in the church that was condoned by the church was through marrying indigenous women and through marrying Latin American women and quote unquote whitening them through marriage that your children would be born whiter. And historian Andres Resendez talks about this in his book called The Other Slavery. And it's, the un- it's about indigenous enslavement in the United States. And I think something important to point out is that Utah was the only territory and state in the United States that practiced the enslavement of indigenous people. I did not know that. Yes. Yes. That's horrifying. A lot of people focus on Utah being denied statehood because of polygamy, which was very true. But the Republican Party, another reason they wanted to deny statehood to Utah was because they believed Mormons practiced what Andres Resendez calls the twin pillars of barbarism. Yeah. One of which was polygamy and the other one was slavery. And so a large practice that Brigham Young condoned that leaders who talked about interracial marriage later on rescinded or, you know, maybe glossed over (laughs) was the violence that indigenous folks in the Utah and, you know, Mexican territories experienced because there were Mexican origin slave traders who would capture and enslave indigenous women and children and try to sell them. And Brigham Young, in these racialized hierarchies, right? If you're thinking about saving people saw this as an opportunity to quote unquote, literally save enslaved indigenous folks. And they would bring women and children into the household as indentured servants. They didn't want to call it slavery, but though some did actually practice enslavement and they would intermarry. And I think if we're talking about terms like consent I have a hard time believing any of this was consensual, right? And so those were the first origins of a lot of interracial marriage. And people like Lindsay Hansen Park and other scholars have podcasts about Brigham Young's relationship with Black membership and, you know, when, you know, the origin of when Black folks who had originally been allowed to join the church ended up losing full fellowship rights and how intermarriage, like Black men marrying white women interplays with this. So I highly recommend her podcast and other scholars I can tell you about later who who talk in depth about this. But from my study, thinking about the way Utah participated in the enslavement of indigenous folks and how this, what I would call forced intermarriage happened as a saving mechanism, Mm -hmm. impacted a lot of Latino women, right? And how families thought about interracial marriage. And so that was a lot of the origin of the first interracial marriages between quote-unquote Lamanite groups and white Mormons. And because the church was targeted for their racial inclusivity, for polygamy, for indigenous enslavement, all of these things that were considered barbaric and inappropriate in white nationalist America, the church had a lot of rebranding to do. And after suffering, as we know, a lot of exclusion and being forced to move, which I would argue like, yeah, that's a natural consequence of a lot of the choices that leaders made, especially under Joseph Smith and Brigham Young's leadership, right? So you then start to hear narratives in the 60s and 70s, even up until the 80s and 90s, discouraging interracial relationships. And you even have Boyd K. Packer in 1977, the year before the priesthood ban was lifted, saying that they, we quote, we've always counseled church members to marry within their race. So Mexicans marry Mexicans, Japanese marry Japanese, Caucasians marry Caucasians, and so forth. So... While that has been taken out of a lot of handbooks, that was really only recently.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, that was a, that was a, just, I have to throw in here, that was explicitly taught to me when I was a kid. I don't know if it was to you. I'm a little bit older than you are. But that was taught to me by multiple people when I was growing up in the church. And I, I do have to say, I mean, we all, <sighs> we all absorb the racist environment that we grow up in. And none of I mean, we can't escape the water we swim in. But I do remember the first time someone said that to me specifically, I felt just heat going through my body. And I'm really grateful that for whatever reason, something in me knew that that was not true. And I felt really angry. So I'm not saying that I was like impervious to uh, to absorbing racial ideologies or racist ideologies. We all do. But mm-hmm. I'm grateful that I never bought that, though I don't blame if people do just accept as children the messages that adults tell them, like, it was just so hard that that was still reported. I feel like that was in the the handbook until very recently, wasn't it, Brie, that that they said, like, bishops were supposed to counsel their members to not marry outside their race until so recently.
1: Even in my life, although my parents have never commented on what race of a person I'm dating, that wasn't part of the conversation. It was more focused on heteronormativity and Mm -hmm. sexual purity, right, than anything else. It is something I saw. And it's it's something that came up in my study a lot. So over a third of the women I interviewed had been married to white men or were married to white men. And this narrative of like, you're too different culturally or it's best to marry within your culture was very prominent. So the benevolent racism of like, we're just trying to help you because of cultural clashes, you know, was a way to maybe cover up for like racism. Totally. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely.
0: Okay, yeah. yeah, let's dig into that. So what did you see? What were, what were some common features of these interracial marriages that you studied specifically, especially those between a white Mormon man and a Latina woman?
1: Yeah, well, that's exclusively what I studied, right? So my study was only with women because of the gender, you know, power dynamics and me being single and unmarried. While I did have interactions with men, I had no desire to, I guess, have these like deeply intimate conversations with men because of how in our uh, LDS sexual politics that can be viewed, right? Unfortunately, me being a single woman and perceived as heterosexual in a lot of situations can create some awkward social interaction. So mm-hmm. I only worked with women. I would have loved to get the perspective of white men. And hopefully in the future, I, I can interview men. So the perspectives I'm sharing are solely from the women I interviewed, right? And while every situation was different, I would say that men initiated most of these relationships which i think is important when i for what i'm going to talk about later but men initiated these relationships whether they were missionaries right lock your heart who had like <laughs> solicited women to write them or like a lot of women described their husbands who they met on their missions as like coming back for them, like after the mission was over, like arranging to come see them or whether it was in a LDS singles ward or whatever, right? Um, Men were initiating these relationships almost all the time. I didn't hear an instance in which a woman was going after a man, which may reflect the deeper gendered politics of dating in a conservative religion, Mm -hmm. right? So That's what I saw a lot. I saw a lot of women reporting that, yes, their parents may have had some concerns about cultural differences, but mostly concerned that they didn't want their daughters to be victims of racism or ethnocentric treatment. But because most of these men had either served Spanish-speaking missions or had lived prolonged periods of time with Spanish speakers, I think there was only maybe one or two husbands that didn't speak Spanish at all, but grew up in highly Latine areas, parents expressed that they were okay with it because the most important thing was that the man was LDS. If their families were LDS, that was a priority, right? Marrying within the faith or that they were a hard worker, that they respected the culture, that they were going to take care of their daughters. Because even if the women had parents who weren't LDS, or um, maybe their mom was LDS, but their dad was like, not religious, there was still these very gendered ideas of that you need a man to take care of you. And you need a man to be responsible, especially as many women were first generation students or hadn't had the opportunity to go to school beyond primary school. So that was a lot of what was reported to me, like my parents may have had some concerns, but it wasn't about race. it mm-hmm. was about can this man provide and if her their parents were Mormon, can they share in the same religion as me? Can they take me to the temple mm-hmm. essentially for white families is a stark contrast. All of the women I talked to reported the racism aggression or just varying levels of coldness and isolation that they felt based on race or based on perceptions of legal status when entering into marriages with their white husbands. So that was really stark. Women almost never shared about like, oh, was it about me being able to be a good wife or being able to be a good mother? Or what was I as an individual person offering this family? The concern was about race and the concern was, are you marrying my son for papers? Mm. Women were undocumented or the perception that because they were Latina, that they were quote unquote illegal. Mm. There was a racialized assumption that you must be living without documentation in the U.S. So that was really hard for women because they felt like who they were as people, all of these individual nuances about them were not considered. It was about what they looked like and a piece of paper that they had or didn't have. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So they were concerned that they were going to
0: use their sons to get citizenship in the U.S. This is what you were referring to earlier, Mm -hmm. right? When you said this is why it's critical to know that it was not the women that were pursuing these men. It was the men that were pursuing the women, right? Yes. So that's completely
1: opposite of what happened. That assumption was not true at all. The assumption was not true, and especially it was very interesting for women that lived with their in-laws, whether it was California or Utah or Arizona, the interactions specifically between white mothers-in-law and sisters-in-law and Latino women, this benevolent racism and power dynamic was especially stark. It was very prominent because of the gender dynamics that exist in LDS culture while fathers-in-law white fathers-in-law did have racist things and you know had their own situations of like micro and macro aggressions happening it was the mothers-in-law and wh- white women in the family that were perpetuating a lot of the long-term isolation and discriminatory behavior towards women especially when Latina women became mothers and were having biracial or multiracial children that they were trying to raise bilingual across cultures. So, yeah, what
0: did this look like? What did this discrimination look like? Or what did they report to you in
1: their real experience? A lot of women experienced like because white women, I mean, the majority of white Women members in the US come from a middle or high income demographic background, socioeconomic background. And a lot of them grew up in segregated or like racially homogenous areas. So a lot of white women had never had to interact with immigrant or non white women like Latinas on a level of equality. Mm -hmm. They were used to seeing this is not my, what I'm saying, this is what Latino women said in our interviews was like, you know, I think I have one instance. Lily, who's Mexican, said that her mother in law, when she first met her when they got engaged, said, Oh, I had a Mexican friend once. She used to come over and we would talk. And then Lily's husband, Aaron, said, No, mom, that was the maid. She wasn't your friend. Mm. And so it was like this very weird, uncomfortable, and awkward situations that white women had not actively chosen or been put in situations that they were interacting with women of color outside of these stereotypical and perceived notions of immigrant women working in service industries, like as maids, as domestic workers. And because of that, a lot of Latina women I interviewed described these uncomfortable and very demoralizing, degrading interactions with white mothers-in-law or like another Mom told me that she received some llama, some pajamas with llamas on them for Christmas. And, you know, this was after years of like a lot of racialized remarks from her parents-in-law. And she just said to her mother-in-law like, oh, thank you for these pajamas. And the mother-in-law said to her, yeah, I mean, I know llamas are from your country. And she said, I'm Mexican. Llamas come from Peru. And her mother-in-law responded, well, all of those things are the same thing. Hmm. And so for this mom, Veronica, that's her name, she described like, okay, I've been married into this family for almost a decade and my mother-in-law is giving me this gift, right? But you still don't know the difference Mm -hmm. between Mexico and Peru. Mm -hmm. You don't... Yeah, like you don't Care to understand my culture or my background, and you see us all as the same. Mm -hmm. And then we have even more stark interactions between white women in their families and outside of it. So, one woman, Natalia, she's from Argentina and she's also black and Argentine. So, she's biracial herself. Her white sisters in law refused to come to the wedding because of her blackness and because she was undocumented. And people thought, oh, she's marrying jacob her husband to get papers
0: and they wouldn't even come to the wedding they wouldn't come to the wedding she reported
1: years later after she had a son right and the mother-in-law wants to see the grandson right and after she was able to adjust her status she reported quote like oh my sister-in-law wants to be my best friend now what changed The only thing that changed is she had quote unquote proven herself by starting a master's degree program, giving them a grandchild and also adjusting her papers. So those are some different varying examples, right? You have every day to day comments that are like, laced with racism and women's just it's very apparent white women's lack of experience and then you have the long term of like you've been in my family for years and I still don't know anything about your culture Mm -hmm. and I refuse to learn and then you have more overt forms of violence right where you're like I refuse to interact with you Mm -hmm. because of legal status or like perceptions of race Then we have Rosa. So she's indigenous Mexican. She describes herself as like has very strong, prominent indigenous features. She married her white husband. They've been married. They have a 22 year old now. So they've been married about 24, 25 years. And she told me during our interview that they were at a dinner table one night, just like a family dinner with her in-laws and her white sister-in-law had mentioned at the table she had been dating a Black member of the church, a Black man. And her father-in-law at the table in front of everyone said, I don't, I wouldn't be comfortable with this relationship continuing. And Rosa said in that moment, like, what do you mean? (laughs) You know, no other races. And then that's when Her father-in-law said, didn't your husband tell you the talk we had with him? Again, we see here the, like, it's better not to marry outside of different cultures. That's what they had told Rosa's husband before they got married. And of course, they got married anyway. But Rosa said that that dinner was a starting point for really understanding and seeing the racism and xenophobia happening in her family and that her mother-in-law, especially when Trump was running for president, you know, everyone in that family was identified as politically conservative, was posting about how Mexicans shouldn't be in the country and all these things of anti-immigrant rhetoric and reposting things that Trump had said that were very degrading towards Mexican origin people. And then her mother-in-law would show up at their house and come play with the kids and bring them gifts like it was nothing. And it really started to, in her words, destroy the relationship because she all of a sudden really had this realization. I've been in this family for almost 20 years and my in-laws didn't want me here. They, I'm the mother of their grandchildren. So of course, they love me in that way. But they don't love who I am and they don't love people who look like me. And, you know, I had a lot of emotional interviews like that, you know, and when I present on this, the most pushback I get is from white women, white LDS women, because when I share these experiences, there's a very visceral reaction of like, I need to defend myself or I need to show that I'm not racist and I'm not doing these things. But the data is the data, right? I mean, all of the women married to white men are having these very gendered and racialized interactions with white Mormon women. Mm -hmm. And sometimes for for decades, right, Mm -hmm. these prolonged interactions where they're just feeling like it's not that you don't have the opportunity to understand me or like know me it's that you don't want to and you're reducing me to my immigrant status or to my race or ethnic background
0: and you're saying when you present this that you find that white mormon women instead of being humble about it and wanting to be you know introspective and and interrogate their attitudes that they react defensively and don't I mean, nobody wants to be labeled a race, a quote unquote racist, right? But is this a situation where we're seeing like the proverbial white tears where the women are like, how dare you say this about me? I would never. I love all God's children. Or what does that look like?
1: Yeah, I think it's very uncomfortable because, and I think you and I have talked about this before, that and numerous Black feminist scholars and Latino scholars have discussed how white Americans specifically view racism as a moral failing, which like it is, right? But there is a focus on it being an individual problem and quote unquote decision to be racist rather than it being rooted in the structure of our very society. For example, I have a term I use called the white familial gaze, and it's based off of the white gaze, which, you know, Black and ethnic studies scholars have talked about the white gays as like people of color or people of the global majority, right? Are often subjected to surveillance from. White citizens and from white people, whether they're cops or agents of the state or just like existing in a grocery store, like going grocery shopping. I hear a lot, well, you're never really alone because a white person is always watching you and watching what you do. Mm. And I use this concept into talking about the family, right? Like the white gaze is part of our structure as an American society monitoring, surveying, and policing non-white bodies has been part of the history of this country since its inception. That was built in to the constitution, right? Of who was considered fully human, who was considered a citizen, and who wasn't. And then when you talk about the family, the white familial gaze in this case is the way that white women who are products of this structural racism are policing, surveying, and criticizing the Latino women or the Afro-Latino women, indigenous women who have married into their families. And then so that violence that, that people of color are experiencing in the public sphere now has become a more intimate violence that they're experiencing in the family. Now, I say all that to say when I'm presenting this, a lot of white women aren't hearing that. They aren't hearing about how this is a structural problem. Hmm. They're hearing, well, I'm supposed to love all of God's children, and you're telling me that I'm not because I'm racist, and that's a moral failing. People hear, you did a racism, you did something, this action was racist, and they equate it to like I as a person. I'm a bad and racist. Person. You're calling me as a person racist, and that's not accurate, and I'm offended. Mm-hmm. I'm offended by that, and I need to let you know, here's all the X, Y, Z things that I do to serve people of color or immigrants in the church. Here, I have a friend who comes over sometimes who's Mexican, right? There's all these caveats that women specifically feel the need to use, right? Or I hear a lot of my friends say the whole like, oh, I have a black friend. That's what I equate it to. Like they're bringing up these instances in which they have a lot of times very superficial interactions with people as proof, quote unquote proof, that they're not racist. And they're completely missing the point that like this is structural. As white people in this country, as white women in this country who are benefiting from white supremacy, We are always going to be active recipients of what white nationalism is doing for us. And while many of us can try to, and I know people like you and I are are doing our best to practice anti-racism and to hold ourselves accountable, I think that there's a deep discomfort with interrogating the fact that as living in white female bodies, we can't escape the structural racism that benefits us and that when you bring up religion and being all God's children, and you have this colorblind narrative that's being pushed, and a correlated history that talks about race in a romanticized way, taking out the violence, it's very hard for women to have these conversations. Because if we start talking about structural racism, and how that impacts socioeconomic mobility, how it affects our ideals as Mormons, right? Like, women being stay-at-home mothers, that's not possible for most immigrant families. Latina women, especially in general, if they're citizens, make 50 to 60 cents per the white man's $1. Undocumented women make even less than that, okay? Latino men experience a downward mobilization when they come to the U.S., because unlike Latino women who are often able to find stable work in like domestic care or you know, cleaning houses or a lot of these things that white women were stereotyping, Latino men are subject to a more unstable job market. And so their income is also less. So if you're thinking about the LDS gender ideal of women staying at home, that's often not possible for immigrant families because they need two incomes to make a white man's dollar. It doesn't mean white families don't struggle, right? But that's what, that's what a lot of white women are hearing when I talk about structural inequity, when I talk about racial inequity that's, that's built into the very frames of the house that is the U.S. nation, right? The nation state.
0: Hmm.
1: So it's very difficult for people, especially women in the church who are maybe more progressive or feminist, who understand the gender dynamics and inequality that women face just as like women in the church to also think about race and to think about their part in that. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for them.
0: Very hard. Well, hopefully people listening, if you can think of someone who might benefit from hearing this conversation, pass the episode along. This is just really, really important inner work to do. Um, I'm. Just as kind of a tangent, but I did think it was important that you just mentioned a patriarchal norm that is oppressive to Latino families, too. Could we just say maybe a couple more words about that pressure to have the single income family where the man kind of protects, provides and presides? That's what the Mormon ideal family is and that that's not feasible. So this is a hardship where patriarchy kind of then intersects with the racism, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can tell you just anecdotally, most active LDS families that I know who are like within my age range, right? Like millennial, you know, mid-20s to late-30s, both the man and the woman work to some degree. Now, a lot of women – And this was true in some of among some of the Latina immigrant women I interviewed. A lot of women until recent years, I I would say the culture is changing, have been discouraged from seeking more education than was necessary. And that's something I was told growing up by young women's leaders, by stake presidency leaders, you know, people who would come and talk at girls camp. Like, yes, being educated is important, but it's so you can support your husband It's so if something happens to your husband, if he becomes unable to physically work, if he passes away, you have a way to provide for your family. It was never like the way it was marketed to men, which is like, this is to help you develop as a person and reach your potential and your divine spirituality so you can serve others. The patriarchal nature of the church and the way we view gender absolutely affects everyone who is considered female. Right. So a lot of women experience this regardless. Right. But then you also have the economic disadvantages and the racial disadvantages and the discrimination because of legal status, right? A triple marginalization that Latina Mormon women are facing on top of being a woman in the church. Right. Which is, you know, there's other studies that have been done showing that Latina first generation immigrants or 1.5, which means, you know, you came as a child to the U.S., but you grew up mostly in like a U.S. cultural context, that's 1.5 generation, that those women in other religious groups like Catholic or evangelical are and their children and like specifically their daughters are more likely to graduate high school and more likely to complete a bachelor's degree or even higher education Like a master's, and to be working full time and making more money than their immigrant parents. But in my study, Latina Mormon women experienced a downward mobilization because of the pressure to get married, because of the pressure to prioritize family, which I would argue, if you're a member of the church, you already have in your mind, like the need to prioritize family. And then a lot of women in their cultural backgrounds, like family is the most important. So it's not a matter of not valuing family. It's a matter of like physically being in the house and physically reproducing these ideas about where you belong. And so a lot of women I interviewed had graduated from high school, especially if they were 1.5 generation, like came here as a child. And some of them I'd say three or four had been able to get bachelor's degrees or beyond like a master's degree. Two women I interviewed have master's degrees, but by and far, a lot of them did not complete school, even though they had the chance to, especially women who were married to white men because white in-laws were giving a narrative well, I was a stay-at-home mom. We lived off a single income. This is what you should be doing to listen to the prophets, to listen to the leaders. And on the other hand, women are experiencing the narrative from their families. We sacrificed so much for you to come here. This is your opportunity to get an education. Why aren't you doing it? And so that's another thing that existed in interracial relationships. And even among women who had married like, US born Latino men, so like Chicanos or Tejanos, was this embodied ideal that men need to have a certain role in the home and women can have leadership and have education, but only to the point in which it serves you being a good wife and mother. So a lot of women never finished their degrees or they faced immense pressure, immense pressure from their in-laws especially white in-laws to live an ideal that was not possible for a lot of them and so for the women that did finish their masters it was not without a lot of conflict within their families yeah it was not seen as a good thing to get more education
0: okay well my last question that I'd like to talk about is just how can this culture change
1: Yeah. I talk a lot in the article about first of all, men. I know that there might be some feminist scholars or you know feminists who don't agree with me with this comment, but I will say there's a lot of academic literature's emphasis for this, which is like people with intersections of privilege and power like need to use their voice to intervene with uh, the oppression and and the violence that we're seeing. So. My recommendation first in the in a lot of my work is that white men and men in general in LDS spaces, in highly conservative or religious spaces as well, not just Mormon, but on a broader scale, need to intervene with the sexist and racist and classist anti-immigrant things that they're seeing. A huge problem that I saw in my work was the way that men somehow lived this dual experience of like, I'm a leader and I have authority and I have priesthood authority and I'm meant to lead this home. But when they're seeing their wives or other women in the family be treated disrespectfully based on the case of race or gender, there was not a lot of pushback from men. I did have some instances where Latina women described their white husbands saying something to the family, Right. But women were often left to battle long term discrimination and prejudice and isolation on their own like and i do I do think that men need to intervene and the 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 constant choice of men to not intervene to not say anything because like they are men, right, and they hold this position, and like women are just dealing with this among themselves. Like there was a lot of that attitude, if that makes sense. Like, but that's my mom or that's my sister. And it's like, well, that's your wife.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And a lot of women were like, how can you prioritize marriage and, and obey the pro- proclamation to the family? But you're letting me get bullied every mm-hmm. opportunity and, and suffer these microaggressions and macroaggressions and men would not intervene. And so my number one recommendation is that If there are men listening who who want to know how they can make a difference, you need to say something because whether you want to admit it or not, you living as a man in the Mormon societal structure, your opinion is going to have more weight because your gender is given more weight and respect in social circles. Secondly, white women are a huge bridge between this and so I always recommend to white women Let's start discussing your testimony of the religion as something different and separate from your testimony of the institution of Mormonism. We can recognize that you have an individual testimony, as we talked about earlier, the pure love and service and things that you can be doing because of your love for Jesus Christ or your love for other people. As something separate than the historical violence and marginalization that's happened in the institution. But we often get the message that the institution and Jesus are one and the same. So if you criticize one, you're degrading your good standing with the other, mm-hmm. right? And white women have a very important role to play in this. Like they exist as people who are being actively oppressed in this power structure, but, who also carry a lot of privilege to make a difference, there's so many instances women reported to me and that I also witnessed in my field work where white women could have been the bridge to solving misunderstandings to building a longer table instead of cutting latino women's voices off. But because there's such a scarcity mentality for women's voices to be heard within the institution, I think that. It's almost like a game of musical chairs, like women are grasping for whatever opportunities they have to be heard and to be taken seriously. And often if you are at a double, triple marginalization in US society, the way Latina immigrant women often are, they often get left behind because because white women are not thinking outside of themselves and their own personal problems. And again, as I mentioned many times already, it's deeply painful for them to sit in the space of like, I am oppressed because of gender or other, other things, but I'm also an oppressor in the ways I'm actively choosing to not engage with difficult subjects or engage with my own bias and how I'm treating other women. right? I've heard so many stories of like white women not sharing the kitchen space in the church with Latina women, or you know, all these micro macroaggressions I've talked to you about where like, is it hard to Google? Is it hard for you to Google and find out that there's different countries? Is it hard for you to sit down and have a, a conversation with your daughter-in-law or with a woman in your ward? Is it, is it really that hard in a, in a service, in, in, a, in a religion that's so focused on service to find a translator for your activity? It does require effort, and I'm not going to minimize the fact that women are doing all of the unpaid labor in the church. Men are doing it in sanctified leadership positions, but women are doing the unrecognized, unpaid, unvalidated labor. And I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying, I'm that I'm glorifying that women are doing this. I don't think it's fair, and I don't think it's right. But white women do have it easier. I am going to be very blunt and say it in that way. It doesn't mean your problems are less. Your problems just aren't amplified because of race or immigration status. Mm -hmm. So recognizing that and using that and bartering that in your positions of power, in your spheres of influence, is a really great way to really start having honest, reciprocal discussions about inequity and about bias and about the structure of institutional racism. But it starts with being okay with being uncomfortable. And I think that because white women in particular do not have to engage with that discomfort, they have the privilege of not having to engage with that discomfort. It often just like isn't addressed.
0: I couldn't agree more, and I'm so grateful for all of that. So just want to thank you so much. Dr. Brittany Romanello, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Alibas for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy.